Our second reading of Holy Scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. If you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. This is God's Word. Then he, Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So far the reading of God's holy word, we give thanks for it. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of scripture, let us pray for God's help. O Lord, our God, we see in some ways challenging, tricky, difficult things in this portion of Scripture before us. We see an instance where undoubtedly the idea of being rejected, called mad by your own family would take its toll on each of us. And yet Christ found joy in knowing who his true family was. And we ask that here today you would help us uh, 
to plant ourselves in the joy of knowing who our true family is as we become part of it because of the Lord Jesus himself. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are, in fact, many. Bless the reading and the preaching of your scripture to bring forth fruit in our hearts to love you more and to serve you better. And we ask all of it in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I have seen two ways to structure a game of dodgeball. Uh, on the one hand, if someone from the opposing team hits you with a, with a ball, you're out. And you go sit on the sidelines. In another way, if someone hits you, uh, if someone from the opposing team hits you, will you join their team? Right? Rather than being ejected from the game, you're enlisted out of one team into another. The lines between teams become well, more fluid, and the goal, rather than overcoming the opposing team, is to incorporate them into yours. Christianity today, especially in the last several years, has seemed to grow far more intensely tribal. And I think that it doesn't take long to think of ways that we can feel the difference in the way that contexts have pressed against us. And what I mean is, by saying that we've grown more intensely tribal, is is that we see, increasingly so, those outside the church as an enemy to defeat rather than as sinners in need of a savior. Christians used to have... Now, I realize that much of this is unconscious. Right, Christians used to have a high-profile evangelistic awareness, having hopes to win the lost to Christ by presenting the gospel to them. And it seems more and more that now too many wish that, well, we could just silence unbelievers by leaning on the legislative upper hand. And so we talk about winning the culture rather than winning people. In other words, somewhere along the line, Some changed their mindset about how to play dodgeball. We used to play to bring our former opponents onto our team, and now we play to put them on the bench. The running theme that we've seen in Mark's gospel about the arrival of God's kingdom and how it unfolds through the ministry of Jesus Christ forces us to reckon with how we we think about this very idea and how we approach that little game of dodgeball that we call the Christian life. In Mark 3, 20 to 35, the recess from confrontation against Christ ends and we find a striking encounter between Jesus, his family, and the religious leaders who opposed him. Both Jesus' family and the religious leaders criticize Jesus and want him to be quiet, want him to cease speaking the true gospel, namely that grace 
to be right with God is found in Christ himself. And this confrontation prompts a consideration of who Jesus' true family is. Showing that Jesus was all about not only bringing people who used to be on the opposing team onto his, but even to make them part of his very family. A family of divine origin birthed in the gospel. And so the main point is that Christ creates a heavenly family, tying us to him and to one another. Christ creates a heavenly family, tying us to him and to one another. And we will think about this together in three points. Confrontation, conquest, and community. First, then, let's think about confrontation. So I love a good sandwich. Right When we uh, lived in Northern Ireland, the, the best thing that I always looked forward to going into Belfast was this little sandwich place that I would go. There's something just like artful, truly artful, about being able to turn a simple idea of bread with filling into a, a really delicious meal. Right? We had these sandwiches at the elders' retreat last week. I'm still thinking about them because they were so good. Mark famously loved a good sandwich too, but not the kind made from bread with meat in between. The kind used to structure a piece of writing. Right Now, throughout Mark's gospel, there are a number of literary sandwiches. Right? So our passage contains the first instance of this feature in our book. So let's just, let's just see this, right? Look at verses 20 to 21 and see, just basically, how they are about Jesus' family coming to retrieve him. And, and then now, if you jump down to verse 31 to 35, we see how these verses finish the story about Jesus' family. In other words, Mark began one story about Jesus' family, interrupted it by telling another story about the scribes, and then circled back to finish the first story. It's a, it's a story wrapped inside another story, like a sandwich wraps fillings between two slices of bread. Right, so the the sandwich thing matters by helping us understand Mark's point, right? He, when he combined stories in this sandwich technique, he did so because both events that he's wrapped together inform one another, showing us why both are significant. So th- think of it, uh, why would he do this? Think of it this way. The, the flavor of orange juice is, is pretty standard, right? And you, pro- you probably don't really think about it much when you, when you take a drink of orange juice, unless, unless you drink it right after you've brushed your teeth, right? The, the flavor of toothpaste still in your mouth sets the, the juice's flavor in stronger contrast, making you, you notice it far more powerfully. Right? And Mark 
combines stories in this sandwich technique to make you notice them more intensely. Right? Toothpaste and orange juice are standard by themselves, but get a reaction when tasted together. Right? You may miss the significance of individual stories from the Gospels on their own, but should notice their significance more strikingly when you read them together. They're mutually informing. And there's a number of these throughout this book, but our first one here in Mark 3, 20 to 35, uh, two stories about Jesus' confrontation with those who refuse to recognize his true identity as God the Son who is the Savior. Well, these two stories make it powerfully noticeable what it means to belong to God's kingdom. Now, I, I do know that people likely have questions about a few tricky things in this passage. But before we get to that, we're, we're trying just to wrap our heads around this passage wider significance so that we, we know what's going on as we come to those questions. And so we have two confrontations that both show what it means to be Christ's family, to be on his team, not even being part of Jesus' biological family meant truly being on his team, but might have meant even being opposed to him in the spiritual sense of belonging to Jesus. In verse 20 to 21, then Jesus' family goes out to seize him, to stop his ministry, saying he is out of his mind. And note, then, essentially a parallel problem in the next section. In verses 22 to 30, the scribes come, just like the family came, saying he's out of his mind. The, the scribes come saying he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. We see how both groups are saying something and essentially the same thing, right? That his message is from a depraved source. And so we have a confrontation coming from two fronts. Jesus' family and the scribes, both claiming that Jesus acted out of accord with God's truth. Now that brings us to our second point, conquest. Conquest. Maybe you remember last time when we looked at Mark 3, 7 to 19. And we saw then how... Jesus repeated the Exodus events to reboot God's covenant people in the church. And so just like God led Israel from the sea to Mount Sinai and commissioned the 12 tribes of Israel, Christ, God the Son, led his disciples from the sea up a mountain and commissioned 12 apostles. And in this way, he constituted his new covenant people as 
as the fulfillment of God's promises to bring about a new exodus. This exodus would not be from physical bondage to overlords, but from spiritual bondage to sin and its curse. Christ is God, saving his people and making them the church. But, if we think about the full scope of the whole Old Testament narrative, we know that the Exodus story did not end at Mount Sinai. It continued not just through the wilderness, but culminated in the conquest of the promised land, taking possession of the land. We read Joshua 1, right, where the people are meant to go and take the land, setting them up in, this, in that passage as poised at the edge of conquest. And we know from implicitly there, but more explicitly from other passages that well, the conquest of the land, taking possession of it, meant killing all of its inhabitants. A hard reality pointing to the ultimate death at the end of history for all who remain in their sin and will be kept out of the heavenly promised land. But, in accord with the full story of the Exodus, the first one, we should not think that Jesus' new exodus, in which he leads believers out of bondage to sin, that it would lack its own conquest. Even in the founding events of Christ's new exodus, Mark highlighted this point, if you look back up to verse 14. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him, And he might send them out to preach. And so the the new covenant conquest would take place not with weapons of war, nor with the power of politics, but the proclamation of preachers. Announcing the good news of forgiveness of sin in Christ. And in Mark, our verses in Mark for today, 20 to 35, we see the nature of this conquest. It hasn't begun just yet, just like in Joshua 1. There, in the sense that uh, they were poised at the edge of conquest, and here Jesus has not yet sent them to do the conquest through preaching. These stories tell us, though, this story tells us what that conquest will be like, poising the church at the edge of our conquest. And as we see here, Christ's conquest is like, is like the dodgeball game where victory means you've gathered the other team to your side. Our conquest is by gospel preaching. Now the two big questions from, from this middle section uh, where Jesus interacts with the, the scribes are... What, what is this parable of the strong man? And what is this unforgivable sin? What is this blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Now I'm going to take them up in reverse order. 
Uh, one, because I know which one you want to hear more, uh, and I want you to listen to the second one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get uh, out of the way first. What is this unforgivable sin? What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, if we think about this whole situation going on here, it's about how the scribes accused Jesus of working for the devil, even though they saw he was casting out the devil's demons. Right? So there was, what, what we can surmise here is that because these are the scribes, and because of, they should have, well, they have recognized some of the realities about what Jesus is saying. There was an informed, you know, we have to, underline some of these adjectives. There was an informed, knowing accusations that God's works are the devil's works. There was a conscious uh, ascription of demonic activity to the Holy Spirit's work. Now, although very specific, that seems to be this unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To, to understand full well, full well, that Jesus is the Christ who overcomes the devil, but nonetheless to say that God is doing the devil's work. So that's what I think that first issue is. Second, second, what is this binding of the strong man? Well, we know because of the verses here, that it concerns Satan and one or more kingdoms. Right? After the scribes accused Jesus of casting out demons by demonic power, verse 23 and 24, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And so, so Jesus furthered his teaching on the arrival of God's kingdom, now explaining how it works as conquest. The, the following parable about the, about the strong man, particularly starting in verse 27, well, then unpacks the way that this new covenant conquest will go forth. Because the overlord of the previous kingdom, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, is bound, subdued in the work of Christ. Because of that, God's kingdom will advance in its spiritual conquest through the preaching of the gospel and the prayers of the saints. Because Jesus binds the devil, puts him in subjection. Christ's kingdom, the church, powers forward. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 11. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent 
who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And note this, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Christ's cross, Christ's cross everlastingly silences the devil and all his power to accuse God's elect. And the word of their testimony, the preaching of the gospel, through the ages of the church's pastors, beginning with the apostles, rolls out Jesus' conquest. Brings us to our third community point, Community. So the, the payoff of everything considered so far is that, well, today's Western church in, sees increasing confrontation with the world around us. Wherein we're told our message is mad. We're told, after all, that we're cruel and insane for believing in absolute, absolute moral truth and the reality of the one true God and in only one way to be right with that God, namely through Jesus Christ. The odd thing is that many Christians respond, somewhat at least, by having distorted the dynamics of, of this confrontation to be very different from the one in which Jesus found himself in our passage today. My point is that we too often treat the spiritually blind as if they have committed the unforgivable sin. I don't mean that we think that consciously. I don't mean that we would say that people who just live in the normal forms of open rebellion against God and his moral law could never be forgiven. We wouldn't say that. But we often at least implicitly believe or maybe, or maybe fear is a better way to put it. We fear that the fiercest opponents of God's truth and of Christ as Savior would never come to Jesus. And indeed, they would never come to Jesus. But the same was true of each of us. Were it not for the Holy Spirit's work in our heart to bring us to faith. And so we must be careful about how we posture ourselves whether on purpose or not in our hearts right we have to be careful about this so that we can think well about what it means for people who have not yet believed unto salvation were it not for God's grace we would be in just as much if not more open rebellion against God Christ by his grace has taken us from his opposing team and made us part of his family by providing the forgiveness of sin. And so we realize again that the dodgeball game of the Christian life is one where we 
hope to see the entire opposing team co-opted onto ours. Now, we, we know that that'll never happen in its entirety, but we go on hoping, believing in the free offer of the gospel. The solution is not to silence the opposition by gaining cultural or legislative upper hand, but the solution is to preach the gospel and pray that the Spirit uses our efforts to convert the masses. That is the pattern exemplified here in Mark. Because we see in verses 31 to 35 that not even being part of of Jesus' biological family automatically gets you on his team. They were opposed to him just as much as the, as the religious leaders, although the, the scribes had less excuse for opposing him. They understood more and should have known better. And so the lines are not drawn by what's closest or easiest for us. The lines are drawn by belonging to Jesus. So our other big payoff then is that the people who join the church are our truest family. The crowd who came to Christ trusting his message were the ones who Jesus said were his mother sister and brothers. God creates his family by faith in Jesus Christ. As Christians, then, we grow in our love for those who are against us because we desire them to see the beauty of salvation in Christ. We pray that Christ's conquest claims countless through the gospel message. We strive for an evangelistic zeal, drawing upon the power from the age to come through spirit-empowered gospel preaching rather than some cultural status quo upheld by weak bureaucrats and policies, right? We depend on the king of heaven himself. Now, the believer, these truths mean... Two things for our life as God's family. It means that Satan would divide us against one another. And that is why we as the church commit. It doesn't happen by accident. We commit to bearing one another's burdens, walking together, And granting generous love, even to those whose personality or opinions grate against us the most. And we do that because we are God's family. Tied together by our common need for salvation from our own sins. 
Maybe you've heard it said that blood is thicker than water. Well, God has bound his family together in the mark of baptism. Water that transcends bloodlines. Our dear brother Nabil made my point for me very well after Sunday school, asking his extended family to come join the picture. And what we take away from that is that we have to realize that Christian, wherever you are in life, whatever phase, whatever situation and circumstance in which you find yourself, no Christian is without a family. We have one another. Now, we may not be the family we necessarily wanted, but we are the family that God has given us. And we trust him to have provided exactly who and what we need by putting us together in the same place as his community of faith. And to connect the dots all the way down, these truths remind us of how rich God's love is for you. Since it takes the Spirit's sovereign work in our hearts to bring us to faith? Well, we know, we know, since it could be no other way, that to be in the church means that God wants you. He put you here. God has put you among his people, made you his family, because he has set his immense and boundless Love upon you. He has done so in Christ. And so maybe, actually, water and blood are not at odds. Because baptism binds together those who have been washed in the blood of Christ. Where we find the forgiveness of sin, the promise of life everlasting, and a heavenly family to help us see all the more clearly that God loves and receives sinners by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we live in an increasingly lonely world. We live uh, in a time when uh, there have to be TV ads asking people to, to give their time just to go spend time with, with lonely members of our society. We know that this, this is a real pandemic where broken families have intensified this all the more. People feel left out of families, whether their feelings are accurate or not. And Lord God, we are thankful that despite how the world is, you have given us this family. There is a rich resonance in calling out to our Father God. We can say it so flippantly. And let us not forget, though, that 
The right to call you our Father was bought with the blood of your Son. You have adopted us into your family, making us his brothers and sisters, but making us each other's brothers and sisters too. We pray that whatever faces us in the week ahead, your rich blessings in being part of the church fill our hearts with delight at belonging to you, Father God. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Let us stand and sing in response the sweetest name of all.